Well, here's what I want to get you to think about this afternoon. That in, in ministry, uh, whether you're a pastor, an elder, or a deacon, or whatever your, your place in ministry is, you're called not just to teach or preach the faith, but to live by faith. You're called not just to teach or preach the faith, but to live by faith. Now, now we need to talk about this because faith isn't natural to us. It's just not. Doubt is natural. Worry is natural. Fear is natural. Anxiety is natural. Playing that... Uh, Endless catalog of what-ifs as you wake up in the morning is natural. Wanting more control than you're ever able to handle is natural. Wishing that you were sovereign is natural. Uh, envying the ministry of somebody else is natural. But faith isn't natural. It's just not. It's counterintuitive for us. It's a radically different way of living life. And so God is working in the midst of your ministry to others, get this, to craft you into a person of faith because you're not naturally a person of faith. Does that make sense? So God is not just after the success of your ministry. He's out after you because you must be that person of faith if you're going to be a usable tool in God's hands. Now I want to... I want to make this distinction for you. There is a significant, even profound difference between amazement and faith. You can be amazed by things. They can blow your mind. They can attract you. They can make you want to study them, but not be living by faith in light of those things. Every summer, my... We would take our children, because we live in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, about an hour and 15 minutes toward the ocean to the Jersey Shore, to Ocean City for our family vacation, to pick medical waste up off the beach. <laughs> My children thought hypothermic needles were shells. It's funny little animals that lived inside of these little things. Uh, and they're... Right down, the next community down from Ocean City was Wildwood, New Jersey. Aptly named, it was a wild place. And in Wildwood are these big piers, and on these big piers were these amusement parks, and our children would always beg us to take them one evening down to Wildwood to ride the rides. And there is this particular ride on one of the piers in New Jersey that just amazed me. It was basically a big 50-foot-tall metal girder. From it were hanging elastic bands, and at the bottom of it was a pouch that they would strap some otherwise sane human being into and pull him or her back and launch them back and forth over the Atlantic Ocean in the night. It's one of those rides where you would text somebody and you'd say, I paid $7 tonight and almost died. Yeah. Now that ride amazed me. It really amazed me. The first time I saw it, I was just like, 
But I will tell you for sure that you will not strap Paul Tripp into that pouch and launch me over the Atlantic Ocean in the night. There's a huge difference between amazement and faith. I don't know if you have a Bible with you or an iPod or an iPad or an iPhone or... Sorry if you're carrying something else. Uh, and you have your Bible on it. But I want to look with you at Mark 6. Mark 6, beginning with verse 45, is exactly what we're talking about. It's, it will be explanatory of what God is seeking to do in your ministry. Now, what's Mark about? Mark is, I love the Gospel of Mark. It's hard-hitting. It's fast-paced. It's uh, history, history, history. Mark is not like Luke. Luke is a doctor. He's got a lot to say. He makes all kinds of side editorial comments. Mark isn't like that. He just sticks history in your face. Boom, 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 boom. It's, it's very compact. It's very efficient. Mark's whole purpose is to declare that Jesus of Nazareth is, in fact, the Son of God. He gives you no room for neutrality. I love Mark. But along with that, there's another theme that Jesus has collected these followers around him, his disciples, and his purpose for them is not just that they would be recipients of the work of the gospel, but they would be instruments of the work of the gospel, but they're not ready for that yet because they're not men of faith. And so he would craft in them faith. And the way he do that, he would do that is introduce some kind of difficulty to them, and in the middle of that difficulty, he would reveal his glory. There's a bit of a gospel equation in Mark. I want to give it to you. It's divine power plus divine compassion equals everything you need. That's Mark. Divine power plus divine compassion equals everything that you need. Now that's the setup for this passage, verse 45 of Mark 6. Immediately he, Christ, made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly amazed or astounded. For they did not understand about the lows, but their hearts were hardened. Now the disciples find themselves in another situation of difficulty. They're trying to row their way across the Sea of Galilee. They're facing an impossible headwind, angry seas. It's futile and exhausting and potentially dangerous. If you look at the time clues in the passage, they've probably been rowing for eight hours. Now, when you read something like that in Scripture, you ought to read in it actively. You ought to ask yourself the question, how did the disciples get themselves in this mess? Maybe they had just been disobedient. Maybe they had just made another unwise choice. Maybe they were just full of themselves, thinking they had ability they didn't have. And none of those things are right. If you look at what it says in verse 45, 
the disciples are in this difficult, hard, discouraging, exhausting situation precisely because they've been obedient to Christ. This mess is Christ's mess. This is the appointed situation of a wise Savior for these potential leaders. Why? Why would Jesus ever want his disciples to be in this kind of difficulty? Why in this kind of struggle? Why facing this futility and exhaustion? Why? Why? I thought he was a God of mercy. I thought he was a God of grace. I thought he was a God of love. Why? 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 If you can't answer that question, you don't have a clue what God is seeking to do in your ministry. I'm serious. Well, Jesus knows something about the boys in the boat. He knows how self-righteous they can be. He knows how independent they can be. He knows how much they're committed to their own glory, their own kingdom, than they are to his. So hear what I'm about to say. He will take them where they haven't intended to go in order to produce in them what they could not achieve on their own. Ministry people, God will take you where you do not want to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. God will take you where you haven't intended to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. God will take you and you and you and you and you where you had no plan to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. I think we give the enemy too much credit. Could it be that much of the difficulty that you face in your ministry is sent from the loving hand of a wise redeemer? You know what the Bible calls that? Grace. Grace. We better be committed to teaching and encouraging and living in the midst of the theology of uncomfortable grace. Because this side of eternity, in your ministry, the grace of your Savior often comes to you in uncomfortable forms. He will craft you into a person of faith for the glory of the work of His church. He will take you where you haven't intended to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve in your own. I have heard hundreds of pastors, but I tend to function as a pastor to pastors, cry out, where is God? Where is His grace? And they're getting it. But it's not the grace of relief. It's not the grace of release. You get those in pieces. Largely that grace is to come. It's the grace of refinement because that's exactly the grace that they need. 
Now notice what happens next. Jesus is on the shore, and he observes that the disciples are in difficulty. And look what the passage says. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, fasten your seatbelts here, he came to them walking on the sea. Walking on the sea. Walking on the sea. You're way too passive. You ought to be saying glory right now. Because there's two powerful things that you need to get that are the result of Jesus taking this walk. Here's the first thing. The minute he begins to walk across this water, you know that this is Lord, King, Creator. He can do anything with his creation that he wants. This is the Lord God Almighty. If what Mark wants to do in this gospel is demonstrate that Jesus Nazareth is in fact the Son of God, case closed, deal done, argument one. He can walk on the sea. This is the Lord. Some of us have such a ridiculously limited view of our ministry because we forget that we are serving a God of awesome glory. You actually think your ministry is on your shoulders. Shame on you. Your ministry is not limited by your immaturity or your lack of wisdom or your lack of gift because it's infused with the glory of the Creator God who has invaded His church by His mercy. Stop moaning about your weakness and get up and serve this God of glory. There, I've said it. There is so much pastoral complaint. There is so much pastoral moaning. There's so much pastoral complaining. When glory has invaded your life and is empowering your ministry, it's a God of glory. But there's, there's something else that even may be more radical than that. Listen to what I'm about, about to say. When Jesus begins to take the walk, you now know what he has in mind for this moment. When Jesus takes the walk, you now know what he has in mind for this moment. Because think about this. If all he wanted to do was relieve the difficulty, he wouldn't have had to take the walk. You with me? If all he wanted to do was calm the winds, he wouldn't have had to take the walk. This is the creator king of all things. All he would have had to say is, peace be still. The wind would have died down. The waves would have been calm. And the boys in the boat would have rowed across to the other side. The minute he takes the walk, you know he's not after the difficulty. He's after the men who are in the middle of the difficulty. He wants to do something in the men who are in the middle of the difficulty. Now be honest, ministry person. When you're going through ministry difficulty, what is it do you pray for? Redemption? I think not for most of us. Escape. Jesus, if you love me, just get me out of this. You're God. You can handle it. 
suck me out and drop me someplace else. It's the vacuum theology of prayer. Because we don't understand what God is doing. We understand that in those moments of difficulty, I have not been forsaken. I am being graced. I am being loved. Those difficulties are mine precisely because he's near and he loves me. Now here's the scene. This is just awesome. Jesus walks across the angry sea into the impossible headwind. Yes, he walks. He can do whatever he wants with his creation. And he's now, now here's the scene. He's standing next to the boat. The boat is still bobbling up and down. The waves are still crashing. The wind is still blowing. The Bible says he meant to pass by them. It doesn't mean that he, he needed a GPS. It means he wanted to take a big enough arc to make sure that all of his disciples would see him. Now get this. This moment is constructed by Christ to transform everything these men think about themselves, everything they think about life, everything they think about identity, everything they think about ministry. Now, because the Lord Almighty, the anointed Son of God, is now present in the difficulty with them. It's a visible metaphor that it's impossible for me to be by myself. It's impossible for me to be left alone. It's impossible for me to, left to the, be left to the limited catalog of my own resources But my life, because my life has been in, invaded by the grace of this one. Now guess what happens? The disciples aren't heartened. They're not encouraged. In fact, they're in a panic because they think they've seen a ghost. These men, this is shocking, in this boat seem utterly unprepared for the difficulty and for the revelation of glory in the middle of the difficulty. Unprepared. They had watched him raise a little girl from the dead. She was dead dead. Dead. Dead, dead. Dead. They had watched him calm another storm. They had watched him feed 5,000 people with a little boy's lunch with plenty of leftovers. And yet they're, they seem utterly in a panic as they go through this new situation of difficulty. What about you? When are you going to quit revisiting the question whether you should be in ministry or not? When are you going to quit fearing your own weaknesses? When are you going to stop giving way to worry when difficulty comes? It will come. My brother Ted, who just recently retired from a long-term pastoral position, I called him once and I said, how are things going at the church, Ted? He said, well, they're going wonderful, but it won't last. That's a seasoned pastor. There's an ebb and flow to ministry. This is a broken world. Things don't operate the way God intended. There is difficulty. 
They're not hardened. It's as if they haven't learned any lessons. Have you learned your lessons? Have you? Now what happens next is a visual demonstration of grace. These guys are in utter panic. They don't get anything that's going on, although they should. And Jesus doesn't stand next to the boat and scream and yell at them and say, I can't believe it. After all I've done for you and you still don't get it, get out of the boat. I'm getting new disciples. Rather, he speaks tender words of gorgeous grace. He says, Take heart, it is I. Don't be afraid. I think what's actually happening here is that Jesus is actually taking one of the names of God. He's saying, don't you understand, the I am is here. The same, the one who is the same yesterday and today and forever, the one on whom all the covenant promises rest, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has invaded your life by his grace. You are never alone in your difficulty because your life has been invaded by the grace of the I am. The I am is here. The I am is here. Listen. When you've just gotten the phone call that your most trusted elder has committed adultery, you better say to yourself, I am not in this moment as a pastor alone because the I am has invaded my life by his grace. When you are under suspicion and attack and you don't know why, you better say to yourself, I'm not in this difficult ministry moment by myself because my life, my ministry is invaded by the grace of the one who is the I am. When you're facing financial difficulty, you wonder how you're going to resource the work of your church. You better say to yourself, I'm not in this financial difficulty by myself. My ministry has been invaded by the grace of the I am. When your own weakness and failure and sin is heavy on your heart. And you wonder if a person like you can do ministry, you better say to yourself, I'm not in this moment by myself because my life has been invaded by the grace of the I am. The I am is here. 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 Why would Jesus ever choose for his disciples to be in this storm? Here it is, I'll tell you, because sometimes you need the storm in order to see the glory. That's grace. Your Redeemer will bring storms into your ministry because he loves you. And he's after you by grace. Storms. Now, finally, Jesus gets in the boat, and the winds come, and the waves die down, 
And it says that the disciples are utterly astounded or amazed. That's not a compliment. And he explains to you why. It says because they did not learn about the loaves and their hearts were hardened. It's one of the few editorial comments that Mark makes in this gospel. You see, this moment should not have been an, a moment of amazement. It should have been a moment of confident faith. There's a radical difference between amazement and faith. You can be amazed by the theology of Scripture and not be living by faith. You can be amazed by the grand, glorious sweep of the redemptive story in the Bible and not be living by faith. You can be amazed at the wonderful resources that are available to you in the library of the church and not be living by faith. You can be amazed by the love of your small group and not be living by faith. You can be amazed at the wonderful worship uh, music that we are now blessed with in this generation and not be living by faith. There is a significant difference between amazement and faith. And it says this, that their hearts were hardened. They had not learned their lessons. When it says they did not understand about the loaves, it says this, they didn't learn the lessons of the, the miracles. Hear this. Every miracle of Christ was meant to present the gospel, which was his mission. Every miracle preaches the gospel. And they hadn't learned the larger lessons of Christ's miracles. Have you learned your lessons? And it says the reason that they had not learned their lessons is they had a hard heart. Now this is shocking, but we have to talk about this. It's possible to be a person in ministry and have a hard heart. You know what the metaphor is? The metaphor is of a stony heart. Imagine I had a rock in my hand right now. Are you with me? And I would squeeze it with all of my might. What did you? What would you think would happen? Well, look at the size of my arms. Well, the answer was nothing because that rock is resistant to change. And why would one be resistant to change? Because we're all too satisfied with where we are. Because we're ministering out of a sense of arrival. We're ministering more in awe of us than we are in awe of God. We've, we've become skilled at denying our own sin of, of self-atoning arguments that make us feel good about what God says doesn't good, isn't good. We call moments of anger moments of strong leadership. We allow ourselves to grow bitter. But we don't own that bitterness. Because we name ourselves as having arrived, we no longer are those moldable and malleable instruments in the hands of the great redemptive artists. Hard hearts. Hear this. 
We don't talk about this enough. Your ministry will be marked with trouble because you have a Redeemer. Precisely because you have a Redeemer. And for your good and his glory, he wants to craft you in a sharp instrument of faith. You're not there yet. And so he will take you where you haven't intended to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. Don't moan about that. Celebrate it. Don't question his goodness and bring him into the court of your judgment. Don't wonder why he's not answering your prayers. He knows that you need the storm in order to see and believe in and live on the basis of his glory. He's not just content with you communicating the faith. He has a deep, unrelenting zeal that you would be in ministry a person of faith. And so he will take you where you haven't chosen to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. What's your view of ministry? Do you long for it to be more comfortable? Easier? More respect? Less difficulty? Or, you just say, or do you say to your Redeemer, I long to be a sharp instrument in your hands. Would you, by faithful grace, please make me a person of faith? I think there are many people in ministry who in ways they don't realize are resisting grace. Why they're preaching grace. Do you hear what I said? And there are many people in ministry who are resisting grace as they're preaching grace. May God help us. Like the moment with the disciples, Jesus isn't just after the difficulty in your life. He's after you in the middle of it. Because he would use this thing to transform everything you think about yourself and everything you think about him. And everything you think about ministry. That's grace. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this stunning little vignette in the life of you with your disciples. Thank you for the way that it, it pictures how you work to craft us into people of faith. Oh, we would confess that we do resist you. There are times when we question you. There are times when we moan and groan and just want to quit. When actually what you're doing for us 
is a good thing. Thank you that our lives, our ministries have been invaded by the grace of the one who is the I Am. Thank you that that means we're never left to our own resources. And thank you that means that we don't have to rule the kingdom because it's already under really good rule. May we rest in you. May we run toward you. May we celebrate the good work that uncomfortable grace can do. In Jesus' name, amen.